Thank you, Dan. Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 9, Luke's Gospel chapter 9. And if you've been in this study with us, you remember last time that Jesus put a very pointed and blunt question to his chosen disciples. He said to them, whom do you say that I am? I suspect maybe even pointing his finger. Who do you say that I am? And it's the question that I basically turned on the congregation last week. Who do you say that Jesus is? And we're not talking about mere profession. We're not talking about words on your lips, theology you can recite, books you've read. We're talking about what you think of Christ. I don't put much stock in George Barna surveys. In fact, you have to take every one of them with a grain of salt because of how they identify their respondents. But they did an even more recent study of the state of the church. The, those who would claim to have a biblical worldview and even those in a subgroup which they would define as born again. In other words, they put some criterion in front of the people and if they said that they confessed their sin and their need for a Savior and committed their life to Jesus Christ in faith and that that has an impact on their life today. That was a basic definition of a person they said was born again. And they were asking questions to sort of see who had a biblical worldview, who was still staying strong, what is the state of the church, is it increasing in its understanding of doctrine? Is it becoming stronger in its cultural influence with its preaching and proclamation and message? Is it having a greater impact or less? It's interesting that the biblical worldview criterion, basically they asked this of every person who responded, whether they had any background or called themselves born again or not. You had a biblical worldview if you said that you believed that absolute moral truth exists if you believe the Bible is totally accurate in all of what it teaches, if you believe that a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works, if you believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth and that God is all-knowing and still is in control of the universe. That was a set of uh, statements that they put out to everyone who then responded. But within that was this subset, this subgroup. There were some 60 subgroups. One was a subgroup defined by, as I said earlier, people who said they made a claim to believe in Jesus Christ, confess their sins, and that they would be going to heaven, and that those beliefs still make a difference in their life today. Of that group of born-again Christians in this recent study, one out of every five still held to those basic biblical worldview tenets. To all of them. 19%. The survey found that slightly less than half of the professing born-again adults believe in absolute moral truth. 46%. On the issue of whether it's impossible for someone to earn their way into heaven through good behavior, not quite half of all professing born-again Christians rejected the notion strongly. So there's a good portion of them that believe that you can get to heaven by good works. And most interestingly, slightly less than two-thirds of the professing born-again people strongly believed that Jesus was sinless. 
2%. How can this be? Who do you say that he is? I mean, they ask the church, and this is what they come up with. They ask the professing church, this is what they come up with. We've been so busy trying to attract the culture. We've been so busy dumbing down what we believe in terms of uh, because we don't want to bear the reproach. We've been so busy saying it in ways that they want us to say it. Uh, we've been so busy, try, so busy trying to make Jesus uh, what they want or Jesus what we want that when asked the question, who do you say he is, the, the church at large, whether you think they belong in the church or not or are saved or not, those who profess to be born-again Christians can't even get over the halfway mark on critical doctrines about the life and person of Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. Professing Christians have never, in the history of Christianity, had more access to the Scriptures, sent more missionaries, built more church buildings, given more financial resources to missions and other work, printed more books, nor enjoyed more unprecedented freedom to advance than we've enjoyed in Europe and America Such gospel privilege by now should be making a massive difference. At least over the last several generations, it should have had a huge impact on the penetrating message of the gospel and the stirring up and rocking of the foundations of our culture. We should be mightier in the scriptures than any generation to date, yet the last four decades has seen the most drastic rise in biblical illiteracy among professing Christians. Our missions should be at the forefront of guarding the truth and planting strong churches and spreading out. Yet missions work is all too often theologically shallow. It is sending agencies filled with a lot of bureaucracy and and a whole lot less shepherding than ought to be going on. And good-hearted people may be giving a clear gospel message to the lost, but planting and maturing, growing, strong churches has been nudged out by superficial social concerns far less important issues. You come stateside and the last 35 years has given birth to mega churches with mega budget stage shows that try to make Jesus attractive to the culture. But I ask you, has that mega experience translated into mega Christ-like people? No. Not at all. More books more people blogging their golden insights and more people retweeting the nuggets. And on and on it goes. What is going on? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is and how do you live in order to demonstrate your view? There's only one right answer to the question. And when we studied this text last week, we saw that there was a first century sort of view of the palace, a view within the palace, Herod himself. We saw that in verses 7 to 9 of Luke chapter 9. Herod saw Jesus as an unnerving menace. He, he saw John's ministry as a problem. He took care of that. He himself had him beheaded. Good, I've killed the problem. I've taken care of this. Who is this I keep hearing such things about? What such things? Well, he just ex nihilo fed 20,000 people with a single lunch in a moment. It was nothing. Jesus becomes for the royalty of puppet kings and rulers down in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area a sort of a menacing, unnerving kind of guy they need to get rid of. He's not Messiah. And then there was a superficial crowd's view. They, they just 
they got fed and they wanted Jesus as two things, a meal ticket and, and a revolutionary leader. I mean, John 6 indicates in verse 15 that they wanted to take him down to Jerusalem, march him down there, set him up as their revolutionary zealot. All this power, he was going to help them get rid of oppression and he could take care of their economic struggles. So Jesus says, well, now that's what the people say. I mean, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And so you went then from the superficial crowd's view to the chosen disciples' view. Peter, answering on behalf of the rest of them, but certainly boldly right up front, verse 20, you are the Christ of God. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God, as it is recorded in the other gospels. You are the Christ of God. This is a bold claim. This is a claim that will threaten the disciples' lives. This is a claim that would alter their life if it's true, if they really believe it. The disciples behind Peter had truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God to be the Savior of the world. And you remember, Peter's confession didn't come because it bubbled up into the flesh of his own mind and heart. He didn't come up with this on his own. Matthew 16 indicates that it was the, it was the Father by divine grace, had revealed it to him in his mind and heart. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. But notice verse 21 of Luke 9. He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. See, this is an interesting turn of conversation. You're the Christ of God. I love the way Luke packed all of these several days, maybe even weeks, into a short period of time. You have have this wonderful account of what the reports are that are, reading, that are reaching Herod's ears. Then you have this feeding of the 5,000. And then Luke goes right from that to this penetrating question, which happened later on. I mean, there are several events that he leaves out, including another event of feeding 4,000-plus people with seven loaves. Luke packs it all together into one thing because the, peop- the disciples had been in and among the people. They'd been out preaching, and they'd been in two di- different huge crowds among some other events. Why does Luke pack it together? Because he wants to get to this issue. Who do you say that I am? And when they said you're the Christ of God, Jesus takes a turn in the conversation and says, yes, I know you claim that. Now I want you to not be mentioning the word Messiah all over the place like I know you want to. say, why is Jesus censuring them like this? Because, listen, they are still Jewish And they can drift into the same tendency of the superficial crowd around them. All the vain ideas that the rest of Israel had about Jesus. The Lord himself is protecting the disciples from drifting into that kind of difficulty and dumbing down and getting shallow and superficial and all about human and earthly things. He doesn't want them to become an obstacle to the gospel that they're going to have to proclaim Because now they're headed toward Jerusalem and things are going to intensify. And what they expect to happen isn't going to happen. The people who'd witnessed the miracle of the feeding 
of thousands from a single lunch. They were all now whipped up into a frenzy, and they wanted to take Jesus by force down to Jerusalem and make him their leader. And to the average follower around the hillside, he, they thought, oh, this is a great prophet that's arrived. This is going to be our opportunity to seize the day. We'll, we'll get rid of Roman cruelty. We'll end the humiliation. And we'll even militarily rise up and crush every enemy of Israel. That was the Jewish mindset of the Messiah. He was military. He was political. He was a ruler. And he gave them everything they ever wanted. And the disciples could go there in their mind and heart, very quickly. And trouble was about to start, and they needed to be faithful to the claim they just made. And so Jesus has to sober their perspective so they don't get in the way. He's got to expose an idolatry tendency and root it out of their sinful desires. They would tend to want to use Jesus for man's interests rather than be on the divine agenda. So Jesus has to break that because trouble is afoot. In the words of John Newton, Jesus has to break their schemes of earthly joy until they find they're all in him. They need to line up with the divine purpose. So how does he do it? Well, he goes straight for the jugular. He tells the disciples in the clearest and most stern terms that a political revolution is not where all this is headed. Stop wanting that. Stop wanting your earthly comforts. Let it go to where it is intended to go. This entire miracle ministry of Jesus is going to come to a violent head in Jerusalem, and his most close comrades and disciples must let it. And though it's not what the rank-and-file Jews were hoping would happen at that particular point, it's not what some were wishing to happen or going to make happen by force, All of this ministry was headed down to Jerusalem and Jesus was going to lose. He was going to lose it all in human terms. This is the worst thing that could come to their ears. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. This is such plain language now. Before, it was kind of cryptic. You know, he was at a wedding down in Cana, and his mother comes to him when they ran out of their resources, and she says, you got you to help. And he's saying, what, what is it that you and I have to do right now at a wedding when the hour hasn't come yet? What do we have to do with one another? And then he says... From that point, he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. And when he's in the temple, he tells the Pharisees in a veiled sort of cryptic way, listen, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. It's not plain language, but it is a reference to his death. His hour would come. It was coming. It was just in veiled cryptic language. In John chapter 3, he's with Nicodemus, you remember. And he says to him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent and all who looked upon it were protected from death, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. It was a reference to being hung on a tree. It was a reference to being hung on a cross and crucified. But it was a veiled sort of cryptic reference. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, and if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And it says there in verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. 
That's why when the multitude heard it, they said, We heard from the law that Christ is to remain forever. How are you saying the Son of Man's going to die by being lifted up? Doesn't make sense. A dead Messiah? That doesn't make sense. That's not the program. He's to come and be our political and military protection. Look at John chapter 6 for a moment. John chapter 6. It wasn't what they expected to be hearing from Jesus that there would be a Messiah cut off. They should have known. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus had said, I'm the bread of life. Take me in. Take me. Don't look for some human bread, some earthly bread, some physical bread. Take me. I am the bread that will satisfy forever. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. Notice he says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He's speaking here about the fact that faith and repentance takes Christ into yourself, into your very life. You now have life in Christ. They didn't like it. Notice verse 60, though many of his disciples, therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And Jesus says, does this cause you to stumble? Does this cause you to stumble? When... What then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? I mean, if you see Jesus Christ ascending back into heaven, but you didn't believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, look, these, my words are life. You've got to believe those by faith. You're looking around for physical bread and things that satisfy you. You're an obstacle to the gospel. You want it your way, perceived your way, understood your way. My words are spirit and are life, he says in verse 63. Notice verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There it is. They weren't walking with him anymore. Why? Look, he was now getting closer and closer to the plain language. The plain language, a crucified Messiah. Well, the Jews weren't on that agenda Jesus didn't want his disciples to backslide and drift back into those same selfish ideas when they go out to become his ambassadors. And so that's why in the next few verses he gives every true follower's view of Christ. You want to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? You must answer it the way he answers it here. He answers it here in 22 to 26 in such a clear way and the first thing he begins with is this weighty view of sin's price in verse 22. A weighty view of sin's price. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. For the disciples on that day, this was critical for them. Absolutely critical because they were about to get in the way trying to make Jesus something else. And this is precisely the problem today. Yet it's even worse because we look back at the cross already accomplished. And still, when gospel ministry gets intense, what do we do? 
We don't want to bear the reproach. We dumb the message down. We try to attract the world. We become all about earthly comforts. We attach ourselves to our homes and the things of this life. I mean, really attach ourselves. We idolize them. We grab onto them. And Christ asks us to do something, pay something, sacrifice something. We don't sacrifice any of it. We just clutch it tighter and tighter and tighter. All the while saying, yes, you're the Christ of God. You're the anointed one. Every true follower's view It begins with the gravitas of the work, begins with an understanding of the weightiness of sin's price, and then it bears it out in your life. It changes your life. You have the weightiness of what that would mean fruit-wise in your life. This is a costly confession for the disciples here. To affirm that Jesus is the Messiah and be headed to Jerusalem for all the trouble... They cannot have a view that is superficial and settled on man's interests. And they're about to be targeted, and Jesus knows it. And in loving compassion, he cares for them by telling them, look, I don't want you saying I'm the Messiah in all these public arenas like you have the message and you've lived it and we're just going to march down Jerusalem with this big message. I don't want you doing that. The Son of Man must go. But don't think that you can get out front with your flag and say, oh yeah, I got this. Because you, in the intensity of gospel ministry and what's about to happen to me, you're going to be fearful. And when I get knocked down, you're going to scatter. You're going to drift. Verse 21, he warned them and instructed them. The Greek here means he sternly charged them in a rebuke. He took on a rebuking tone. Look, I'm giving you strict orders. That's the word here, commands. I'm giving you commands to tell these things to no one. You can go out and proclaim the kingdom. I want you to do that. You can preach repentance and faith. Yes, I want you to do that. You can preach that I'm a savior. But if you go around using the Old Testament language of Messiah over and over again, like you're the champion of this great cause, what's going to happen is the Jews are going to come after you to use you. God, these unbelieving Jewish communities are going to come use you and you're going to end up getting in the way of what I am going there to do. You're going to get in the way. You're going to try to stop me. Notice at the beginning of verse 22, the way it's translated here, it says he warned them, and then he says he was saying to them. It's interesting. It's important that, you know, you wonder why we study language, the original languages. It's not because we want to nitpick things. It's because it's very important to get the translation right. Basically, this is, this is what you grammarians will call a participle. This is what he's doing. He's connecting verse 21's rebuke and censure with verse 22, and he's saying that as he was gagging them, as he was putting a gag order on them, it was because he was laying out in sequence the very things that they would tend to forget have to happen. Like, like Israel itself that ignored Isaiah 53 and ignored a dead Messiah and thought they were going to come and have this guy arrive and just make all about them. He says, no, it's not about an earthly kingdom. It's not about temporal things. It's not about your money and your security and your safety. It's about a spiritual problem. The man's soul has to be dealt with. The NIV, by the way, is the only translation that got this wrong because they made that verb stand alone and they missed the connection between the two verses. Jesus laid it out in a sequence 
while he was censuring them in order to say, don't get sidetracked, don't fall into craving cheap victories, don't get proud, don't think that because you alone remain with me that somehow your opinions and your interests matter, don't lose track and sight of what this is about. I'm going to Jerusalem and it is going to be a a losing battle from an earthly perspective. You say, didn't they just make this great confession? Weren't they already clear on the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Apparently not. Go back just briefly to Matthew 16. (laughs) Right when this is happening, Matthew records just a staggering notation about Peter. And if you've studied Matthew's gospel, you know this. How prone they were to get in the way of God's agenda. So prone to getting in the way. Verse 16. After Jesus had said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17. Blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, but my father who's in heaven. And then he tells him, I'm going to set you up as the laying the foundation for the church, the doctrine of the church. There's going to be great authority delegated to the church as to the gospel. Verse 20, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And so here we are. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed and raised up on the third day. Verse 22, Peter yanked him aside. That's a free translation. He yanked him aside, pulled him aside in some sort of formal thing, and he rebuked him. Look what he says. God forbid it, Lord. He's invoking divine prerogative and authority and sovereignty. He's saying this to his Savior, whom he professed to be the Son of the living God. He yanks him aside and says, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Listen, that was in that moment one of the most vivid depictions of satanic, hellish doctrine. And it was coming out of the mouth of someone who'd just been used by the Father to speak great truth. How vulnerable is Peter? So Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You say, boy, I bet after that Peter would never drift again. Really? Matthew 26. You remember in verses 31 to 35, the night of Jesus' arrest, Judas had been sent out to do his evil deed. And the disciples that night were puffing themselves up with all this, ah, who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to have a first chair. I'm going to carry the flag, you know, whatever they're doing. Missing the point. Self-confident. And Jesus says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you. And when when you've returned, they want you to strengthen others. And he said, even if I have to go to prison and die, I'll never forsake you, Lord. Before you hear the rooster, you're going to deny me three times. Listen, he were get, they were getting in the way. 
they were becoming obstacles, and that's what Jesus didn't want. And so here in Luke, Luke 9, he's heard them make the profession, and so he censures them. Don't make this some big revolutionary rally about me being the Messiah. I'm on a timetable. My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I'm headed there. Just know that it's coming. Nothing can thwart the plan. But you must have a weighty view of redemption's price first. And so he gives them a weighty view of it, verse 22. Remember, we look back at this. So these things all become important in our thinking when things are intensifying and gospel ministry becomes more difficult. We must be grounded in verse 22, saturated with it. And it's very interesting because here you have in the Holy Spirit's genius just a mere 24 Greek words that give six of the most thrilling redemptive details. They're profound the details of the saving work of Christ. They cause us to be sober about the work that we do. And as re- this whole gospel proclamation intensifies even in our own culture, the weightiness of verse 22 ought to hit us, ought to remind us, ought to call us up short, anchor us, and give us courage. Just six details of the saving work. Notice, first of all, he says, the Son of Man. What is that? That's the sin bearer. The Son of Man is the sin bearer. He reminds them, look, I, I came for this purpose. That's why he uses the title. It was a crucial title. The Son of Man tied Jesus to the throne of his father David. You remember in the genealogy of Matthew 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He is human. In the Old Testament, it was used almost for a, as a synonym for a human being, sometimes used to speak of his frailty compared to God's infiniteness and greatness. Son of man was often just a synonym for a human being. And so here Jesus pulls it into the New Testament ministry of his earthly life often to demonstrate that he came as a man, to do a work as a man. God is not a man, Numbers 23, 19 says, that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. There it is again. Son of man is used in comparison or contrast with God. Why? Because it is our humanity. Christ took on human weakness in order to accomplish something. So he uses the title here again, to draw attention to his suffering. In the Gospels, the title Son of Man is used by Jesus in reference to not only his work on earth, but his affliction. Yes, it's used of his kingdom authority. In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells the paralytic, rise up and walk. It's an issue of delegated authority to the God-man. It's an issue of his affliction. He took on our limitations. It's an issue of his humanity. He's reminding them that there will never be a redemption without a second Adam to replace the first Adam. Hebrews chapter 2.14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, in order that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. So Jesus mentions here the sin bearer to sober their perspective. He then mentions the eternal decree The Son of Man must suffer. It must happen. 
There's a divine timetable, and nothing can thwart it. Your little petty concerns about earthly comfort, your little concerns about uh, getting the kingdom restored the way you want it, we might translate that into our culture. Your concerns about human comfort and your economics and all those things we worry about, those are all secondary matters way down the list compared with what really mattered to Christ, and that is solving the sin problem. When someone says, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you go right to the issue of the souls? Or do you go to the, the issue of self-help? Well, Jesus really helps me get this. Jesus is my homeboy who helps me do this. Jesus helps me get this. Jesus is sort of this, you know, genie that, that we sort of call forth when we want something. When someone says, what do you say about Jesus? Who is he? You ought to go right to the eternal decree. He is one who had to suffer. Here he says he must suffer. Day in the original language. It means it's an absolute necessity. In Luke 18, 31, he took the twelve aside and he said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. In the 24th chapter of Luke, verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. In Mark 9, verse 12, Elijah does first come and restore all things, and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he'll suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's written. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Mark 14, 21. This is an eternal decree in the inner Trinitarian union of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A promise was made by the Father. And that promise is an eternal promise made before time began. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that it is a promise of the hope of eternal life and it was given by God who cannot lie and he promised it long ages ago. This is an eternal decree. Jesus came to earth. He must suffer. What does he suffer? Well, we... Jesus mentions in this one statement the sin bearer, the eternal decree, and the untold depth of it. Notice he must suffer many things. This is a, an interesting construction in the original language. It's basically a, a, a form of the, the verb that sort of has this total package view. All the things that he suffered, it's incomprehensible, incalculable. He must suffer all that was planned for him to suffer. You say, when did it start? With his incarnation. His suffering began when he came to earth as an infant, born of a woman. You say, how did that start his suffering? He took on the limitations of human flesh. He became a dependent little child in the home of two sinners. His suffering began when he let go of the glories of heaven and took on human flesh and took on the form of a man, the form of a slave. So it His suffering began in his humiliation. And then he was left to the human frailties of living in human flesh, just like our human frailties. And then he he suffered slander and unbelief, though he never deserved a moment of it. He was full of integrity, no deceit was found in his mouth, yet they slandered him and didn't believe in him, though he was worthy of their faith. Always worthy of it. He walked right by people all day long who didn't believe in him. 
He was worthy of it. Their creator, the Savior, taking on human flesh for them. He walked right by them. They said nothing. That is untold suffering for the Son of Man. He was shamed without a cause. John 15, John records there the quoting of Psalm 69, verse 4. They hated me without a cause. You and I have never been hated without a cause. We might be temporally hated by someone who thinks we've been unjust and we haven't. We actually have a defense, but that's just on a human level. We actually deserve to be hated by God. We're born hated by God and under his wrath. And it's not without a cause, is it? We're guilty. Jesus was never, never guilty. He endured that. He was threatened by men he could have threatened instantly. He was rejected by his family members who should have accepted him instantly and completely. He was abandoned by his disciples. Sure, he endured physical torture of the worst kind, but that was secondary to the internal spiritual torture that came when he took on a foreign guilt, not his own, and he felt the sting of all of it for you and me who believed in Christ. And every sinner who would ever believe in Christ, he felt the sting of all of that guilt, though he never deserved any of it. He became sin who knew no sin. Untold suffering. Untold depth of suffering when he was finally rejected and condemned by his own father. Matthew 27, 46. What's Jesus doing? He's just sobering up his disciples about what's to come. If you're going to be my witnesses... And you say, when I say the question, who do you say that I am? And you say, I'm the Christ of of God. If you're going to proclaim that, you better be ready because things are about to intensify. You've got to let me go. You've got to let the purposes of God go. Here we are 2,000 years plus later preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Things are intensifying. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you understand The Son of Man did have to suffer. Do you understand the eternal decree behind it? Do you understand the untold depth that he suffered? Does that affect who you say Jesus is and how you conduct your life? He also mentions here the scandalous treason of his own people. The Son of Man must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. This is absolutely mind-boggling because... You remember John 1.11 says he came to his own, what? And his own did not receive him. His own. It's, a, it's, a, it's an endearing personal term that speaks of the beloved. He was their Messiah. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15.24. He was their prophet, their priest, their king. He belonged to them. He, he was their creator. He's, he was the one that chose them out of all the nations of the earth. He, God of very God, is the one who made them something when they were nothing. He's the one that walked out, according to Ezekiel's prophecy, into a field and saw this throwaway child aborted and thrown away and picked up that child and said, live, and took that child into his into his arms, a a child of no account to God's people, a child of a pagan nation, a child of just out there, thrown away, discarded. He picked that child up. It's very graphic language in the prophecy. 
And he said, live. And he brought that child in the palace and raised that child up and gave it all the royalty. This was his people, personally beloved by him. This is scandalous treason. Jesus wants that embedded into his disciples' minds. Don't you know that your own people, our own leaders, have rejected me? I don't want you to forget that I must go, and you must see that happen. Do you know what he was concerned about? He's concerned that those Jewish leaders would come to his disciples and try to get inside intel and get them to betray him just like Judas did. Work a deal. Jesus did not want his true followers vulnerable when things intensified. And so he laid it on their heart that there was this sin bearer, this eternal decree, this untold depth of suffering that was to come through scandalous treason of the leadership of his own nation. And it would result in an inglorious end. The Son of Man must be killed. Killed. This is not a notion of the Messiah that the Jews had. They thought that he would come and affirm them and say they were righteous, the most righteous of all the people, that all their law-keeping was marking itself up God's scoreboard. They were looking good. And that he would come through their affirmed schools and through their traditions and that he would acknowledge them in the chief seats sitting around as everyone gawked at their theological and spiritual superiority and elitism. And they thought when he came on the scene, if he did have power, he would walk right into Herod's palace and toss that usurper out. And he would walk right down to the center of Roman rule in Jerusalem and toss them out and then take his entire band over to Rome and toss out Caesar and the emperors. That's what they thought. Not that he would set up a kingdom of righteousness where he's purchased souls of sinners, but that he would set up a kingdom of their own righteousness and make them powerful and them Uh, served by the Messiah. And Jesus says to his disciples, he must be killed. Killed. This is outrageous. This is unthinkable. This is, this cannot be. Did you know that today, even the most orthodox sect within the Jewish religions, don't like Isaiah 53. Some tear it out of their copies of the scripture. They never do an exposition on it. They don't want to because Isaiah 53 indicts the people of Israel saying that it was the stroke due to you for your sin that was placed on him. The iniquity of us all was placed on him. They don't like to talk about it. And Jesus says, I don't want you, my disciples, to forget it. When you go out on my behalf and you say you believe in the Messiah, I want it to change your life and your message and your approach when things get intense. Not only an inglorious end, but finally the enemy is defeated. Notice, he even told him, and he'll be raised up on the third day. That's such a sweet thing to say. 
That's the enemy defeated. Death is defeated in Christ. Romans 6, because Christ died, death can no longer have a hold on him. He lives to God, and therefore if you're in Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. Sin's not eradicated, but slowly the power of the Spirit of God is putting your old life to dead, to death in Christ. And only in Christ. So they're, they're about to get intense here. And Jesus says, I want you to have a weighty view of, of redemption's price. And that will lead then to the weighty view of following Christ. A weighty view of following Christ. And our time is gone. We're going to unpack this next week. But notice what he says. Verse 23. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus says three things. If you say Jesus is the Messiah, if I say to you, who do you say that he is, and you say he's the Christ of God, then that means that you have understood what this verse means already by faith. And to to one degree or another, you've already walked in it to a degree. But the church today has gotten dumbed down because we don't hold this verse up as the criterion. We're not wanting to bear the reproach of the world. We're trying to attract the culture. We're dumbing things down. Things are intensifying. We're sort of making superficial peace because we want to maintain the life we've had. And Jesus says the same thing to us. You want to... You want a weighty view of redemption's price? Then it should produce a weighty view of what it means to follow him. And that means three things. One, you disown yourself. You sacrifice everything. And you obey him. That's a description of a follower of Christ. That's their view of Christ. He is is supreme to the point where I disown my own opinions, my perspective about all things related to morality, the soul, anything God says in his revelation. I disown my own view, my own opinions, and I embrace his by faith. And I take up my cross daily. That is to say you die, you sacrifice everything. doesn't mean he asks for everything, though he might, and he may one day. But it's all on the altar already, right at the beginning, of every day and through every day. Lord, you have it all. It belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. You do with it as you please. You do with my life as you please. And you follow follow me, he said. You walk where I walk. You live like I live. You speak what I speak. You do what I do. It's a pretty weighty view of following Christ. Again, we'll unpack each of those next week, but notice, notice the motivations. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. Look, you serve self, you lose all that you hold. If you serve Christ, you gain everything he holds. Verse 25, what does a prophet, a man, if he gains the whole world, loses or forfeits himself? To gain the earth, yet lose your eternal soul is to gain nothing. So you have big houses, more barns, big bank account. Those are great things to use for God. They're horrible things to trust in because you'll potentially lose your soul. Those things become a God to you, as we'll see next week. You're in real trouble. In verse 26, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when... 
He comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Look, being ashamed of Christ now means knowing his rejection in eternity. But bearing his reproach now means knowing his love and favor in all eternity. Don't you see how a weighty view of redemption's price and a weighty view of what it means to follow him affects the way that you give the gospel? It affects the way you proclaim the kingdom. It affects your answer when you're asked, who do you say that he is? So I'll put it to you the way Jesus put it to us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Oh, you say he's the Messiah? Then do you have a weighty view of what it meant for him to purchase sin? And do you have a weighty enough view of what it means then to follow him? Man, we got to get rid of some baggage, don't we? We have got to learn how to get rid of baggage more and more. Pray with me. Lord, we don't want anyone today to go away from this place. Here would be our prayer, our plea. that No one would go away from this place flippant or casual or self-righteous or self-confident or personally opinionated against the truth or trusting in their own thoughts and their own control of their life and destiny. Lord, give grace today for those who know and love you. May this become just a gripping reality for us as we move into intensified times of gospel ministry. May we never become an obstacle to the work you're doing, setting our mind on man's interests rather than yours. And Lord, for the lost today, I pray that they would walk out of here so heavy of heart to come to grips with their own rejection of you. Maybe they're just fascinated with you like Herod, or maybe they just want safety and security like the crowds. Or maybe like the disciples, they profess you, but they still are not interested in disowning themselves. Work in our hearts, we pray, O God. Be merciful. Thank you for the truth. And may we worship you in a greater way and live more faithfully and follow you more richly every day, more sacrificially as you teach us these things. We ask them in your great name, O God and Savior. Amen.